Right, okay, good morning. Uh, would you like to be turning to Matthew chapter 1? We've been going uh, through the series in the lead up uh, to Christmas all the way through this autumn term. A series we've called It's All About Jesus. That's involved looking at the I Am sayings in John's Gospel. We're now going to embark on, as we head into December, looking how Jesus was born, Jesus coming to us, the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. And we're going to start uh, by looking at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, to which the immediate sigh goes around the room, it's a list of names, which I am very excited about. It's an exciting list of names. Uh, I believe God wants to speak to us through uh, those names and the stories in there and what Matthew is trying to say by giving us this list of names uh, at the beginning of his gospel. Just wonderful to hear what we have all the way through the worship time so far. I could pick up on all those things. I want to pick up on what Gareth said. You can look at all the Greek gods, and actually, Gareth, you probably know a lot more about the Greek gods than I do because I haven't read your book. Um, but you can put them out there and they've all got their strengths and weaknesses. I love this sense that Gareth was bringing. They've all got their strengths and weaknesses and they kind of, they, you put them there and they look to these gods who kind of, he might be good at doing this and he might not, they might not be that great at that, but they're really good at this. And you put them all together and they kind of come and can sort of do something, it seems, maybe. Actually, they can't even do that. But, but gods, one, one and the same, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's powerful and he's gracious and loving. And as we see, even in looking, and as we will look at Jesus coming in the flesh, the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us, this is God, the all-powerful, the one who made everything in the beginning, saying, look, I care, I love you. I'm going to come in my power and in my grace and bring salvation. So let's read together Matthew chapter... Well, I'll read. You can follow on. You can read it as well if you want. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exiles to Babylon. 
And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. It's a lot of names. (laughs) And we could look at this list of names and go, oh my goodness, what a list of names. Brilliant. Now I know that Ram was the father of Aminadab and Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. But Matthew doesn't give us just a dry list of names. Matthew's giving us a big picture. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the story of Jesus. This is Jesus' history, his earthly history. This is the story of what God has done to bring us to this point. This point, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is the Messiah. You see, Matthew lays it out here in three acts through the Old Testament. We've got Abraham to King David. We've got King David and the kingdom in all its kind of glory to Jeconiah and his brothers and them going into exile. And then we have this return from exile and the time afterwards. See, it's a big story that goes throughout the Old Testament. God called a man named Abraham. He spoke to him while he was still in a place called Ur in the Middle East. And he said, go to a land that I've called you to. Go to a land that I will show you. He gave him a great promise of a a land and a family and a nation. He gave them the promise of great blessing and that he would be a blessing to all nations. And he journeys to a land and Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob. They lived in this land as outsiders. They lived in this land that would later be the promised land. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers and the family starts to grow. And we see... They're in the land, but then, as we've looked at recently, the story of Joseph and his brothers, and of course, effectively, Jacob's family. And Joseph leads the way into Egypt. Uh, They're saved from the famine. Judah and his brothers, as it puts it here, go down to Egypt with their father, Jacob. They're saved from famine. And for years they live in Egypt and gradually it gets not quite so much of a salvation. It becomes more of an enslavement and they're trapped in Egypt. They're slaves to the Pharaoh. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Aminadab and the generations go on until God sends Moses and leads them out of Egypt. He brings them back 
to the promised land, the land that God had always promised to Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. Brings them back generation after generation until David the king. God establishes them in the land and brings the king and says, here is King David, I've, 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 put the, I've established you in the land. The kingdom is at its kind of most glorious with David and then David, who's the father of Solomon and the temple is built. It's a great story that is going on. So act one ends, David's on the throne. The kingdom is united. The people of Israel are all together in this land. God's plan working out. And as Act 2 begins, David was the father of Solomon and Solomon builds the temple. But after Solomon, things start to go a bit wrong. In fact, towards the end of Solomon's life, things start to go a bit wrong and the kingdom divides in two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And from then on, we see a list of Judah's kings down and down through the generations here in Matthew chapter 1. We could go down the generations, some good kings, many bad kings. And the people in decline in the nation, and it's not going well until ultimately... Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon and they've lost the land. Years before, the Assyrians had taken Israel and the northern kingdom and now Judah as well have gone into exile and it looks like everything's gone wrong. What on earth is happening here? Generations have passed since Abraham was the father of Isaac. Exile. The kingdom failed, David's line faltering and dead. But Matthew takes us on. After the exile, generations go on. And Zerubbabel, along with Nehemiah and Ezra and others, lead the way in coming back to the land and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the nation. And they're settled back in the land again and the generations pass. Names we might not be massively familiar with. Maybe... Some are more familiar than others. I'll admit, I'm not massively familiar with lots of them. But these generations go on. Down and down, they're established back in the land. The exile now may be long past, but what's happening? What is God doing until this moment? And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. You see, Matthew, far from just giving us a dry list of names, he's spelling out, look, there's a big story here that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But you could go right back. Go back to the beginning of time as Rachel was praying earlier. God, you've always had a plan. But look, this is the story. Prompting memory of so many stories throughout the history of the people of God's. I'm going to suggest that it prompts us today to see three, three things. Prompts us to see the promised king. Prompts us to see the grace of God. And prompts us to see God's heart to welcome people in. Let's look at those three things in turn. 
First, we see the promised king. Matthew looks at the big picture. That's where he starts in this in his entire gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. This is Jesus. As he's going to go on in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And we find out about this baby born in a manger or laid in a manger in a small village somewhere in Israel. Humble, What's going on here? What's happening? No, 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 no. This is Jesus, that baby born in a small village. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. This is a massive moment. And Matthew is showing us the big picture. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the promised one. That's why I'm laying this out. This is Jesus This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for, the promised one, the son of Abraham. Remember, God promised to Abraham. God who called Abraham all those centuries ago gave him this promise. We think of the story. Abraham had been promised a son and after many years he was given a son. They had Isaac. And some years later, God calls to Abraham, and we can read about it in Genesis 22, and says, Abraham, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham goes. And Isaac willingly goes with him, and they go up the mountain, and there's questions, okay, Father, we've got the fire, and we've got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice, my son. They go up the mountain and they're all set. Isaac's actually willingly lying down, ready to go through with this. And God says, stop, Abraham. And in Genesis 22 and verse 15, we read what God then says to Abraham. We, we can remember the story that God provides a ram caught in a bush and says, no, sacrifice the ram instead. But then God says to Abraham, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham this. In Genesis 22 and verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, All nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. And we see Paul pick up on that promise in Galatians 3, verse 16. God's not talking about multiple offspring and massive loads of descendants. He's talking about one who would come the offspring of Abraham, the son of Abraham who would come and bless the whole earth. God promised to Abraham, one's coming from your family. One day, this one will come. This is Jesus, the son of Abraham. And he promised to David. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He promised to David. You see, While David's reigning as king, David wants to build God a house. He wants to build a temple. 
a place for God to dwell among his people. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he, he kind of presents this idea. And he's talking with Nathan the prophet. But God speaks to Nathan the prophet and says this. And he says, we can read it all in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but he, but he says to Nathan, go to David and say, are you the one who's supposed to build me a house? Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? That's in verse 5. I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up to Egypt to this day. And he goes on to tell no, David, you're not the one to build me a house. And he speaks to David in verse 8 and 9 and 10. He tells David, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. God turns it round. David wants to build God a house. And God says, no, 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 I'm going I'm to build a place for you. And then he gives the promise as we come through in verse 11. The back end of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who'll build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he shall be my son. And he goes on. I'm going to raise up one of your offspring. And we see it with Solomon. We catch a glimpse of it. Solomon builds the house. But Solomon's not the forever king. Solomon's not the one who will, whose throne is established forever. God has promised David a king who would reign on his throne forever. One who would come this is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises to Abraham and to David. What's Matthew saying? Look, here they are fulfilled in Christ. Here they are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God promised that just at the right time he would come. Galatians 4 and verse 4. We read this from Paul. Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship just at the right time. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we see Matthew closes the chapter with this intriguing comment about there being 14 generations from here to here and 14 generations from here to here and 14 generations from here to here. This sense of completeness, this sense of the time has fully come. From Abraham's calling, God leading the people in and out of Egypt, establishing the kingdom, that time has come and gone and is complete. From David and the established kingdom through the whole fall of the nation and the splitting and dividing and going into exile, that time has come and gone and is complete. 
and from coming back from exile and re-establishing themselves in the land and waiting and waiting and waiting. That time now has come and gone and is complete. He's come. The promised one, just at the right time, has come. So Matthew, first of all, lifts our eyes. This is the promised one, and he's now come. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. We see the promised king. But also we see the grace of God. Matthew leads us through this story. We could look at it as just a list of names, but we see, and the, the early readers particularly would have remembered, no, no, I know about him, and I know about him, and I know what happened then, and I know about that, and yeah, I know what happened there. This story they've led through. And of course, there's reason, of course, to trace the lineage back, to trace the family line, to see, look, Jesus really is the son of Abraham, the son of David. But at the same time, Matthew draws our attention to see the hand of God on his people throughout history. Look, look at what God has done here. Look at what God has done through history. Remember when we looked at Joseph and Jacob's family recently, what a roller coaster ride. Jacob and his sons, imperfect group, but God was with them. God led them through, and all sorts happened. And they were, and Joseph is thrown in a pit and then taken to Egypt, and, and he's doing one thing over there and being placed in the right place ready to save them. And the family are all over the place, and what are they doing? And we'll read about some of it. And you just think, what a mess of a family, and yet God is leading them through. The grace of God is taking this family through, and you could go time and time again through this line, through this family. Look at what God has done. Look at the grace of God on this family, on this people. And as we look at them, we see an utterly imperfect family an utterly imperfect line. See, Matthew hasn't airbrushed this somehow. This uh, family tree hasn't been touched up to remove any uh, awkward family history or to uh, remove any embarrassing relatives. He's not kind of whittled down the family photo. No, you, please, stay out. No, you, uh, well, we're going to need to do some work on you before you can really be in the picture. And you, um, actually, maybe, because he would have probably ended up getting rid of everyone for a start. But he, he's brought us in. Look at these people. An imperfect family. There's no airbrushing that's gone on. Of course, as we look at every name, we see imperfect people, even those we think had a generally good reputation. We could look back in, the, in Chronicles and Kings and look at King Josiah and King Hezekiah and go, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what the, the writer of Kings and Chronicles says. But by no means perfect. And maybe in the coming chapters, after that statement comes out, we see oh, they've not got it quite right there. We can look at 
David, the king, the man after God's own heart. But we'll see in a moment how he got it badly wrong. Boaz, the gracious kinsman redeemer. But none of them perfect. We see God's grace at work even as we look at Jesus' family line. We see Jacob's ups and downs, his trickery, his great low moments. We see Solomon with his great wisdom and he built the temple but then got drawn away marrying loads of foreign wives and worshipping their gods. And also we see it in some very dark moments. Kings like Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, who certainly did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So many stories that are brought to mind as we look through these names. All the way through, but in the declining kingdom, from David to the exile, so much of it looks bleak. So much of it looks, what on earth is going on with this people? What on earth is going on in this nation? How can God do anything with this? And yet the grace of God is at work all the way through. So we arrive at Jeconiah, who otherwise was known as Jehoiachin, and his brothers, and the end of the kingdom, the exile, and read Jeremiah chapter 22. If I can find Jeremiah 22. Here we are. Jeremiah chapter 22. Everything looks utterly bleak and dead. Jeremiah 22 and verse 24. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, that's Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I'll deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born. And there you will both die. You'll never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man Jehoiachin a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? Oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Well, that's that then. It's dead. It's gone. It's all gone wrong. Exile. A dead line. David's family, flat. It's gone. And yet the grace of God is at work. The redeeming power of God is at work right here in the midst of this family. So that even then we see in the very next chapter of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. 
This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Saviour. Just the very next chapter. Look at this, Jeconiah and his brothers. Oh my goodness, what has gone wrong? Death and exile and no way. That's it. But I will raise up a righteous branch from David. Speaks very similar words to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. From the stump of Jesse, a new shoot will grow. From the stump, dead, a dead tree that is just cut off and worthless. No, no. From there, even there, even in this darkest point. He was the father of him and he was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile. This is a bleak moment. No, no, no. God's still at work. God's at work. He's going to bring a shoot out of this dead tree of a family. God's grace and redemptive power is at work. And so, even very soon afterwards, we see in in Haggai chapter 2, This is testing me. (laughs) Haggai chapter 2 and verse 20. See if it comes on the screen before I find it. It Oh, no, we still got Matthew. I'll see if I can find Haggai chapter 2. Which I can't. Anyway, in Haggai chapter 20, 20, in chapter 2 and verse 20... It's there. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Keep going. <laughs> Can't keep going. <laughs> anyway, he speaks to Zerubbabel. Two generations on, tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. We'll have to keep going. I will overrun royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, two generations on from Jeconiah, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. What he just said to Jeconiah, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I'd throw you off. That is a rubble, two generations on. Just a glimpse, this is what God's doing. This is what God is redeeming. It's a rubble, I'll make you like a signet ring. Thank you, guys. A glimpse of what God is doing in redeeming things, in bringing his grace. Look, I'm going to raise up one. The grace of God is at work all the way through. This is what God is doing bringing the true king, coming to redeem and say, bringing the shoot out of the stump of Jesse, bringing this righteous branch. Jesus comes full of grace and truth, as it says in John 1.14. See, we see God at work through a truly imperfect family over many generations. From Abraham onwards, not a glossy, perfect family, but one with loads of imperfections one with all sorts of things that have gone on and yet all the way through the grace of God at work leading them on till Jesus comes we see the promised king we see the grace of God and we see God's heart to welcome people in I'll try and be brief (laughs) 
See what's intriguing in Matthew chapter one. In many ways, we see a typical Jewish family tree. This man was the father of this man. This man was the father of another man. And he was the father of another man. And on and on and on. It's typical because women weren't normally mentioned in Jewish family trees, not particularly. And for most of the part, Matthew's genealogy follows the same course. The line was passed down father to son to son to son to son to son. And yet God's heart to welcome people in is highlighted in the four women he does include. In Jewish genealogies, they weren't normally mentioned. Not particularly. So Matthew had no need particularly to mention Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Of course, as well as Mary. We'll leave Mary for now. So it's significant the ones that Matthew does include. Four women, Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, who again we've looked at recently. Judah's daughter-in-law, who he mistook for a prostitute and slept with her, having mistreated her after his son, her husband, died. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho who hid Joshua's spies. Ruth, the Moabitess, the one was fiercely loyal to her mother-in-law and came back from Moab with Naomi. And Bathsheba, who David took and then had her husband Uriah killed to try and cover the whole thing up, in his attempts to try and cover the whole thing up. As we've already said, Matthew makes no attempt to clean up the genealogy. And particularly here, he need not mention them and therefore the stories that they represent. Could have glossed over, said, oh yes, Ammon was the father of Boaz, Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed was the father of Jesse, we won't dwell here. No, these are the places he does dwell and bring some focus. See, he's not mentioning Abraham was the father of Isaac, whose mother was Sarah, but he does mention the women here. He includes them for purpose. Because the coming king, Jesus Christ, is Lord of all. He who is the promised son of Abraham and of David, the promised Messiah, the one God's people had been waiting for for generations, the one who comes full of grace and truth. He is truly Abraham's seed who brings blessing to the whole world. To all families, to all peoples. And as such, he welcomes those who are outsiders. He welcomes the Gentiles. He Matthew, in highlighting these four women, he draws his attention, our attention in doing so to at least two, if not four Gentiles in this family tree. Four who have been brought into this family line. See, Matthew's not trying to claim some kind of pure Jewishness about this line. This is the people of God completely separate and, and, and with nothing coming in from outside. Now even in, even in focusing our attention on Rahab, 
one of the women from Jericho who was saved out of the destruction of Jericho and brought in. Not only just welcome to kind of be a part, she's in this family line. Matthew's keen to show us, look how God includes the outsider. Look how God includes people from every nation, tribe and tongue. Look how God includes people who weren't ordinarily in here. He's brought them in. As I say, we see this in Rahab. And we see it in in Ruth. A young girl from Moab. But she's the grandmother of King David. God wants, God in sending Jesus, is showing us his heart to welcome men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue, from every background, from every status, from everywhere. Come and be welcomed in. Come to Jesus. You see, even in his family tree, God welcomes the outsider. God welcomes those who are sinners, which of course is everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Son of God, the promised one, comes to seek and save the lost. We see it even in his family line. A line of imperfect people, highlighted by but certainly not limited to Rahab, the prostitute. I'm bringing attention to her. Look, she's here. She was saved and brought in. She's been included. She's been welcomed in. In the other, in the other stories that we see highlighted in the cases of Tamar and Bathsheba, we cannot, be, we cannot ignore the fact that we're drawing attention to the sin of Judah and of David. Look, and yet God I said, I come with grace. I forgive you and I welcome you in through Jesus. God brings the line of the Messiah through these stories. These stories that just on the surface you just go, ah, look what's happening here. God welcomes the sinner. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Our attention is drawn to it here. Look, even here back in the history of how Jesus came to be on earth. Look. At these who have been welcomed in. Look at how I've used even, even the, the utter sin of what Judah did. Look at the utter sin of what David did. Look at all of this, but yet God has used, has gone, has, has used them and moved on through it. Kept his plan, working out his plan, even as sin abounds in there. God welcomes those who have been wronged and mistreated as well as those who have done the wronging, i.e. the sinner, sinner we've just talked about. We focus perhaps on, Ru- on Rahab so far, but see Tamar, who we've talked about a little bit. Genesis 38, if, uh, if you want to look at it. Judah's gone down to stay amongst the Canaanites. He's taken a wife and he's had three sons. He gets a wife for his eldest son, presumably from among those Canaanites as well, and she is Tamar. But his eldest son, he's not a, 
nice guy. He ends up, God strikes him down, he's dead. So Judah gives Tamar the, the next brother. He's no better, and he dies. So then Judah decides, well, I'm not really sure I want to give my youngest son to Tamar. The other sons keep dying. And so kind of just sidelines her, rejects her, sends her back to her father's household where she has to live as a widow, kind of as an outcast in society in that particular time. And leaves her until the point where Tamar realises he's never going to give me the other son. She goes out and Judah mistakes her for a prostitute, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. Then when he finds out about it, he's about to kill her until it's revealed to him, look who the father is. It's you, Judah. God welcomes those who've been wronged. God comforts those who've been wronged. God comes to bring healing in situations where so much hurt and pain have come. You look at Bathsheba, taken by David again, made pregnant. Her husband is murdered. You kind of don't really hear much about Bathsheba at that point. It's just David trying to cover his tracks. He gets Uriah to come back. You go and stay with your wife. Well, he doesn't even say it directly. He's trying, trying to lead Uriah in that direction. Or come back, have a nice meal with me, and then obviously you're going to go home, aren't you, right? Uriah's like, how can I go home when we're out on the battlefield? I'm not... I'm not going home to enjoy myself. Uriah's kind of uprightness kind of foils David's plan. He said, no, 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 have another night. And he tries to get him drunk and then tries to send him back again. Come on. It doesn't happen. Uriah's just saying, no. So David has him killed. David has him killed. Bathsheba's saying, her husband's killed. And think about the next part of the story. Nathan the prophet comes and says, David, cutting a long story short, David, your son's going to die. Whose son? David and Bathsheba's son. So Bathsheba in the space of short space of not a long time, or kind of less than a year, she's lost her husband, she's lost a son, she's been messed about by David. In the midst of that, God redeems something, and from Bathsheba and David comes Solomon, and the line continues, and the line goes on. God welcomes those who've been hurt and wronged and says, come and find comfort in me. That's true, God's heart is for those who've been mistreated, the widow, the orphan, the downcast. He sets the lonely in a family. This is what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost and to welcome those who are lonely, to welcome those who've been mistreated, to welcome those who've been hurt, those who have suffered pain and loss. We see that clearly highlighted in these four women. Women who suffered great loss. Rahab, Rahab's lost her home, her city, perhaps everyone she ever knew. Tamar's been rejected. She's lost two husbands. Bathsheba's had her husband killed and her child die. Ruth's lost her husband. And has ended up leaving her people and her land, everything she's ever known left everything behind. Jesus welcomes those who have suffered pain and loss. And finally, as we look at all these women, Jesus welcomes those who will follow him. We see this point also. What a cost we see in the stories of these women. 
But Jesus comes and says, come follow me. See this particularly kind of glimpsed at in the story of Ruth. What a story. Go and read the book of Ruth later if you, if you want to read about it. This young Moabitess, this young woman from Moab, had her husband die, his brother has died, their father has died. So Naomi is a widow, she's the mother-in-law of Ruth. Ruth's a widow and her sister, not her sister, no, the wife of his brother is also a widow. Naomi says, just go back to your people. There's nothing for you if you come with me. Orpah goes back, but Ruth comes with Naomi. Ruth says, I've seen something. You and your people, I'm with you. Your God, I'm following him. I'm coming with you. They come back to, to Bethlehem, they've got nothing. They've got nothing. Ruth sent out to glean in the fields to kind of get the, the, the bits of corn that the, the harvesters are kind of supposed to leave behind for the poor. She goes out gleaning in a field to, just to make ends meet. They've got nothing and she has no one. It's just her and Naomi. She gives up everything. Yeah, what does God do? He makes, her the great, he makes her the grandmother of King David. She's in the line of Jesus. She's, she's brought in Boaz. You can read the story of how her and Boaz get together. Boaz showing that sense of, this is what Jesus is to do. He's the one who comes as the redeemer and says, look, I'm saving you, I'm rescuing you. Jesus welcomes those who will follow Matthew 16 goes on to say, 16 verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus came to welcome in all sorts. That's what Matthew highlights in in drawing attention to these four women in particular and the stories that they represent. So what do we see here? We see the King of Kings, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, but also the son of Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. Matthew begins his gospel with this big picture announcement. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The promised one has come. The time is fully, is finally here. Jesus has come and he comes with grace to save the sinner, to welcome the outsider, to comfort those who suffer and have been hurt. And he comes to call us to follow him, whatever the cost. As we start into December, this is Jesus. This is that baby in the manger. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham.